Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. Good evening and welcome to The Parent Show here on Radio Verulam on 92.6 FM. I'm Steve Simpson. Tonight we're bringing you three feature interviews which cover a lot of ground between them. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from Dr Linda Greenwall, a practising dentist based in London, who also runs a charity called the Dental Wellness Trust. We're going to be subjecting the state of the nation's children's teeth for its six-monthly checkup and finding out what can be done. And also, we'll be talking with a local family who adopted a rescue dog and had to cast the net further than you might imagine in order to find one. It's a charming reminder of the value of pets in a family environment. But first of all, June O'Sullivan is here to talk to us tonight about the effects of poverty on successful parenting. June O'Sullivan recently appeared on The Parent Show to talk about nurseries and how to pick them. And what was supposed to be a quick chat ran on for a whole programme. We dedicated the entire show to the task of choosing nurseries and it was fascinating to talk to her she had a lot to say a lot of really good points and I'm delighted to say that June is back with us this evening welcome back to Radio Verulam June thank you pleasure my pleasure I'm going to give you a proper introduction first of all you are the CEO of LEAF which is the UK's largest childcare social enterprise with at last count 39 nurseries around London uh, you also consult with the government on children's issues such as obesity and you have consulted with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge for their foundation on child poverty. Yeah. And it is that last point that we want to talk to you about this evening and I promise we will not keep you here all night like last time. We're going to talk about how poverty can affect successful parenting. So first of all, what do you mean by successful parenting? Um, I'm going to do a politician's answer here now and bounce it back to you and say, let's just think about poverty first and then think about parenting within poverty. I, d- I think it was two years ago, because the last year seems to be a bit of a blur. Um, I, I did a TED talk on poverty and child poverty and the implication it has. And I was absolutely shocked to discover the kind of numbers we're talking about uh, in terms of poverty. So there are 4.2 million children living in poverty. And by poverty, we mean households with an income less than the 60% of the UK average. And of those, over 70% of people living in poverty are working. So I think we have to set the context here, because often when people think about poverty, they have, uh, you know, a range of impressions, you know, the sort of, you know, Charles Dickens, you know, no shoes on the street sort of type thing. Two, um, you know, poverty meaning, oh, they haven't got the, the newest, smartest phone and, and anywhere in between, but actually. So where would you set the bar in terms of that, that scale? Obviously, you've referenced it there in terms of um, average income, but what impact would that have that threshold for poverty have on the life of a child well i'd set it within the context of childhood so you know what is the normal sort of behaviors or what is the normal expectation of what a child has or what a child can expect in this modern society so if you're if you're one of the one in four children who are living in poverty a lot of what you have got isn't what everyone else has. And a lot of what you haven't got is what everyone else has. So, for example, children living in poverty are less likely to have the kind of resources that are kind of necessary to survive. They are less likely uh, to be able to go to things like birthday parties. Um, they're less likely to, it, it, more recently actually, to have you know the right kind of equipment for uh, the, the weather. So... Recently, in one of our nurseries, for example, after the second lockdown, when the children came back, we noticed that they hadn't any money to buy winter shoes in preparation for the winter. And we we partnered up with a charity called Sal's Shoes to support them. Um, And I was really shocked by that because you sort of think that, you know, with, with, with shops that, you know, can deliver things quite cheaply, that nobody really should be without the right shoes. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So, yes, they're not starving in the street. Are they not, 
you know, they don't look kind of often that different to another child. But inside the home, there are real deprivations in terms of what is the norm and what is expected. And I think with the whole Marcus Rashford sort of spotlight on food and being able to provide the right food for your children, that was very interesting about, you know, what people can have and what, what is good food and what you can afford to buy in terms of that. So not necessarily saying people are starving in the sort of Charles Dickensian sort of way, but actually they're not exactly eating the healthiest food or have enough of it or have a kind of lack of lack of um, of range of, of foods, particularly things like vegetables and fruit and stuff, which are actually a little bit pricier than people um, always imagine. Not a politician's answer at all, because you answered it very relevantly and very concisely. Thank you for that. But I am going to bring you back to the original question, which was, what do you mean by successful parenting? How would you be able to define a successful per- uh, parenting experience? I guess the first thing about successful parenting is feeling good about being a parent, you know, feeling in control of it, feeling um, that you have the right support around you when you don't quite know what to do. Um you know, having not having a stress, um, you know, about um, uh, buying the right things or being able to seek the right information or being able to turn the heating on. So, you know, when it's cold, being able to take your child for an outing, having, you know, having the, that kind of access to to support and care and someone that you can share the your worries with and stuff i think all of that leads to a confidence in parenting that then impacts on your relationship with your child and i think one of the things that really helps successful parenting which is a challenge for all parents these days no matter whether you're rich or poor is time i think having time to really enjoy your child and to kind of play with your child and to be able to um, relax with them, tell stories. Um, you don't need vast quantities of things to do that, but to have time to do it is very beautiful. And I think it really helps in terms of creating successful uh, parenting because successful parenting is really reflective of success- successful relationships. So you would argue then that the pursuit of, of time, and uh, which is constrained by poverty, is the real issue, r- rather than the ability to provide you know, the, the latest PlayStation games or whatever. The fact that a parent may be time constrained because they've got to have two jobs or three jobs or they've got to do things themselves, that's the real difference between successful and unsuccessful parenting. I think um, time is definitely one of the success uh, elements. And I think the other thing is a lack of stress. Um, and uh, the, there's a kind of an association between being living in poverty and stress um, and the worry that comes from not having enough or not being able to support the family or not having time to do stuff or, you know, all those kind of pressures. That builds stress and children living in stressful environments don't tend to have you know, have have uh, the happiest of times. And it, it can't be very happy for parents either who are worrying. So we noticed, for example, when parents came back after um, lockdown that, you know, they had no savings. So, you, you know, if you're living hand to mouth with no savings, it builds stress because you have nothing to fall back on if something goes awry. Um, and that then makes you anxious or makes you, you know, short tempered or afraid or, you know, depending on the support structures you have around you. And that then impacts on your parenting skills. And that then therefore has uh, a kind of a longer term, you know, sort of impact on the way you parent and, and the outcome that has for your children. It's an important point that you, you made earlier on that parenting is difficult whether you're poor or not. Uh, we're not saying here that um, if you're in poverty, you will be an unsuccessful parent because equally there will be many parents who are affluent uh, and, and who aren't concerned about money but still have the same levels of stress and perhaps time constraint but for, for other reasons. Would, would their challenges in parenting be the same? That's a really good question. And I'm really glad that you framed it in the idea that because you're poor doesn't make you a bad parent. And I think there's a real and I was I think in my kind of rambling opening, I was trying to make that point that actually uh, the perception sometimes of being poor is it is always a deficit one. You know, we always think of it in the negative. But being poor doesn't necessarily make you a bad parent in any way, shape or form, because you might have more time to spend with your child or you might be in a have a, have a real network of people around you to support you. So you may not 
not have a lot of money, but you have a, uh, a sort of wherewithal, uh, a support structure that enables you to understand that children learn just as well by counting the stairs or turning a saucepan upside down or um, taking them to the park to play with them or going finding all the freebies across London to to make use of as much as um, having you know, having no money or having a lot of money. So I think sometimes people perceive that being poor equals being a poor parent. That's not the case at all. But I think what often happens here is we live in much more isolated lives. So I think for a lot of parents, the sense of isolation and 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 um and poverty that that you know of of uh, connections and networks and support systems adds to stress, which adds to that sort of negativity, which therefore kind of impacts negatively on the ability to parent and it would be the same whether you were rich because I think we did a study just a small study amongst our parents a good couple of years ago and what we found was loneliness amongst parents was highest amongst those who just had a baby irrespective of their social background and we ran some sort of clubs you know for for new parents and what we found was of course lots of the parents who attended were very stressed parents, but that's because their their husbands or their partners were working overseas, and they were they weren't short of money, but they were short of a network. They were short of self confidence, and they were lonely, and that created stress for them. That wasn't to do with money and affluence or resources, but everything to do with confidence and a sense of isolation, which then impacted on their ability to parent. So, if we go back to the the issue of poverty and the impact that that has on parenting clearly nobody sets out to to be poor to be in a situation where they are lacking in something and and if you are in that situation it extends far beyond parenting there are many other aspects of life which are challenged by poverty if somebody is in this situation where they, they recognize that they are they're struggling with parenting, what are the practical steps that people can take to improve their ability to parent in that very, very crushingly difficult situation? I guess the first thing is to understand is not to blame themselves because poverty is a structural issue. Uh, it's to do with, you know, the way we pay people. Uh, the fact that, as you know, that what I just said at the beginning was I think 66 to 70 percent of people in, in poverty are working. It's to do with having to deal with, you know, zero hour contracts and all the other things that are not actually conducive to family life. Um um, so I think that's the first thing, because if you start beating yourself up about failing, you're immediately, you know, already kind of, you know, creating that kind of negativity, mm. particularly that you can't get out of it. I mean, the second thing is you've got to understand, you know, where you can go for help. Now, children's centres were the a plan to be spread everywhere. And this the idea was that they would have all sorts of support networks and drop-ins and information and you know all of those things that um, would be helpful to people and just connecting people and 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 helping them to understand that there's a toy library and you know various things like that Mm -hmm. now some places you know they've been really um, reduced children's centers um, and I guess it's about finding out if there is one near you or if there is similar service being delivered in a library or in a community center because quite often what they decided to do was they might run the building as a children's centre, but all the services that you might want to connect with were in there, you know. And so it's about finding that out. Um, and the other thing is, I guess, is um, for for small children particularly, if, if there's any way you can talk to your health visitor, um, again, about just connecting you. Because there's lots of really nice organisations that are run as charities that are designed to be supportive um, you know there's Homestart and there's Playlink and there's many other kind of organizations Bernardo's run things that that are really just nice drop-ins and and ways of kind of connecting you with options and and uh, sort of uh, human human networks and I know this is a difficult thing to be talking about right now in the middle of Covid but you know we won't be in Covid forever and and you know uh, these networks will continue you know, in some way, shape or form. So I think the isolation that comes with poverty is a really important way, a factor in terms of responding to it. 
do you get a sense, June, that there is a reluctance for people to ask for that help? With so much help available, plenty of places that people can turn to, do you get a feeling that there's a, a sort of a historical pride and wanting to do things and, and solve problems themselves rather than ask for the help which is available uh, to them if they need it? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Because, I mean, when I grew up, you know, nobody had much money, but nobody had much money. So you didn't feel that different. You know, nobody had a, had a bike for a long, long time. And if you did, it was a big deal. You know, my parents often made the choice about, you know, can you can we afford to heat or can we afford to eat? But we weren't alone, whereas now it feels that you're very much alone. It's just you. And it's not true you know actually it's scarily scarily high the numbers and I think that's the first thing because I I always think people instinctively blame themselves they look into themselves and think oh it must be my fault I'm you know I'm just no good and no I'm useless at this you know I, I I'm I should be ashamed of myself I can't afford to buy my child a decent pair of shoes what kind of a parent am I you know and I think people get very kind of locked into that and that then and always always locks them out of the ability to to seek out and to find the sort of support that's out there because the reality is they are not alone there's far too many people in poverty there's far too many children being reared in po- in poverty and while we try and kind of as a community kind of try and address the structural things we have to in a way do it in a, with some kind of kindness and empathy to make people realize that it's not a personal problem it's a societal problem that there is the situation and it's about making things accessible like the library and you know all of the other things that are under threat at the moment but actually are central to a kind of open and accessible um, set, set of services that make people feel welcome and not kind of isolated or um, in a way kind of stigmatized. And on the larger scale uh, you mentioned societal problems there, and we know that you have consulted with government agencies um, on issues such as child poverty. Do, do you get the sense that they really understand the extent of the problem and the the, the imperative need to do something about it? Uh, frankly, no. I think they're. Um, I think it's they distance themselves from the reality, and I think we saw that with the debacle of the food vouchers. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've written to the Prime Minister to say, you know, food vouchers should be for children under five as well as over five. And I think it was shameful the way some of those um, food vouchers were distributed, the unevenness of it, the um, the paucity of of uh, of food in some of those parcels that were, you know, um, paid for through the, the voucher uh, and the kind of disrespect that goes around poverty. And I think it, it's there is a sense that sometimes... I think people feel it's probably a personal issue rather than a structural problem. Because if you're working and you're working three jobs and, um, you know, you know, it's it's not your fault that you're in poverty in some ways. You know, it's it's not you not trying to you're not sitting at home in that kind of way netter kind of notion. You know, it's mm. you're actually out there doing stuff. And I think we have I don't think the government and the government's current government narrative is clear enough because I know when they put a lot of effort into reducing child poverty, the numbers went down significantly. So when there was a lot of policies around ways of reducing child poverty, which included like childcare, uh, access to support services, an improvement in um, access to to work through training, um, you know, many other routes to reducing poverty because work alone isn't going to reduce poverty. Um, then the numbers went down significantly. Uh, they went down by t- to by about six hundred thousand, and and now of course they've all gone back up again. So I do think government should take more responsibility for it, and not just use the kind of weasel words that they're very good at, but actually, you know, take take real notice of the implications of not looking after our youngest citizens, our youngest children, um, you know, because not in, not supporting them. Is meaning that, that you're just building up trouble for the longer term because the connection between, um, you know, stressful parenting, an increase in, in ill health, an increase in mental ill health in children, uh, an increase in failure in education, they're all, it's all um, recorded. There's evidence of all of this along the way. So if you know that, and actually you have a genuine heart and you actually want the citizens of the future to be healthy and able to fulfil their potential, then we really should be investing in child poverty 
um, together because it's it's to everyone's benefit. It is a fascinating story and we could talk about this at great length, but sadly we're out of time this evening, June, but it's a very clear message which you've you've shared with us this evening. June, thanks for joining us this evening and uh, thank you for being with us here on Radio Verulam. Thank you, it's a pleasure. We're going to take a short break now, but we'll be back in a few minutes to hear from our next guest, Dr Linda Greenwall, a practising dentist in London who also runs a charity called the Dental Wellness Trust. The Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See raidensolicitors.co.uk. Welcome back to The Parent Show here on Radio Verulam on 92.6 FM. Our next guest on Radio Verulam is a dentist, not just any dentist, however. Ever since she qualified in her native South Africa, Dr. Linda Greenwell has been a passionate advocate for improving dental health, particularly in deprived communities, setting up foundations and charities, first of all in the townships of South Africa and now in the UK where she lives and practices. Dr. Linda is the founder and head of the Dental Wellness Trust, a charity specifically designed to improve the situation on dental wellness and children in the UK. Dr. Linda, welcome to Radio Verulam and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's our pleasure as always. First of all, time for our routine checkup. What is the state of our children's teeth in the UK, do you think? So, in general, the state of children's teeth is good, but in certain areas, it's not, and there's and there's certain reasons why. So, for example, one of the government statistics says that 77% of five-year-old children are free of decay, which is great, but what about the other 23%. It's still almost one in four, isn't it? That's no, no figure to be yeah. proud of, really, 77%. Absolutely, absolutely. So it says also that the children with the most in the most deprived areas are having twice the level of tooth decay, and that's pretty severe. Now, you have described it as a national crisis, haven't you? What, what is, in your opinion, are the factors that lead to this figure of 23% not being uh, cavity-free? I think that there there are many, many factors, and um, we have to look at the um, statistics of children going into hospital to have their rotten teeth taken out. Now, some figures quote uh, 44,000 or 48,000 children in England are going into hospital every year to have their rotten teeth taken out. That means they have to have a general anesthetic, recover from a general anesthetic, trauma for parents, for children. It's 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 quite it's really sad. We have a very excellent, sophisticated national health service, and this shouldn't be happening. It's sad, but it's also frightening, Doctor Linda. That uh, that number of people—that's forty forty eight thousand, did you say? Children are, are having to be put through that situation, and the costs associated with that uh, activity must be extraordinary. The cost is huge. I think that the, the figures they were quoting was about three thousand pounds per child to have a general anaesthetic and stay in hospital. And if you took times that by 48,000, can you imagine what, what money you would save um, to put to preventive care? So we always want to prevent the situation from occurring and analyze why is this happening? What can we do about that? And how can we make changes? I'm, I'm always for looking at the positive side of things, taking the challenge and making it an opportunity in that there are certain things that we can do ourselves, we can help others, but we can make a difference ourselves. So we have to analyze and look at the factors of what what can be changed now. There's obviously long-term problems, but what small things we can do now to make changes. Well, we have a big problem now, don't we, with uh, COVID and the availability of dental treatment with the severe restrictions which have been placed on dental surgeries for the um, the the health and security of, of all the dental technicians. But before all of that came into play, I mean, the, the situation was was bad. Where we said twenty three percent of children with problems, one in four almost. But was that situation improving, or was it getting worse? Do you think? It was slowly improving. It was slowly improving, um, but there is still there's still room for improvement. But now with COVID with not enough access to 
dentistry being in lockdown people are scared to go to the dentist they're not there were not so many facilities for urgent care and so we're in much more of a crisis and we heard today that actually children's health is getting worse in lockdown and we need to do something to improve this very quickly we need to look at the factors and how we can do this because hopefully soon we'll be out of lockdown and things will slowly 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 get better and then we need to tackle these issues head on to be able to help and make a difference. Now, surely as a society, we understand the value of dental health, the personal well-being, the costs and the, 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 the benefit of good oral hygiene. We understand the concept of prevention being better than cure. The science of dentistry has developed surely in leaps and bounds through technology, technique and understanding. How can it be that at any point in modern day, the problems are getting worse? So just right from the beginning, most of us don't really know how to brush our teeth properly. So if we did know how to brush our teeth properly, we could take responsibility for our own health to ensure that we are brushing properly. So it starts right from the beginning to take responsibility and um, brushing well. Mm-hmm. And so as Dental Wellness Trust, when we, when we looked at how we can make a meaningful impact, we looked at setting up toothbrushing programs for children. We call it Live Smart because it's smart to take action in terms of taking responsibility for your own health. Don't blame anybody else except yourself. And so we like children to take responsibility to learn how to wash their hands well and effectively. And it's easy, it's easy for a five-year-old to learn this very quickly and then to learn how to brush their teeth properly. Is it fair to make the child responsible, Dr. Linda, when uh, you know, a parents have got such a, a, an influential part to play in this too? Surely it, it comes down to parents always, setting an example. Always co- exactly. It comes down to parents setting an example, parents teaching their children, parents spending time with their kids to actually ensure that they are brushing, not just say to the child, go brush your teeth when actually they don't even go anywhere near the bathroom. <laughs> so it actually... Um, the research has shown it pays off to nag your child to get into the bathroom and sit with your child and brush their teeth. Sometimes, depending on the age, the child, um, normally what we say, the mummy brushes first or daddy brushes first or brother brushes first and then the child brushes. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the teeth are being brushed properly. And we know that there's actually, did you know, there's 19 different parts of the teeth to brush in the, in the mouth. It's different surfaces, and we teach the children through the through fun how to brush. And even brushing your tongue is quite a major thing and an easy thing to do. And where that's where most of the bacteria are harbored is in the tongue, and um, that's responsible for bad breath and for um, keeping in the sugar bacteria. So that's a simple thing. There we go. I've learned something tonight. I've learned something tonight. Good. I could think of 18 different surfaces and I'm guessing the 19th is the tongue there. So that's... Uh, exactly. That's go you got it. it. You got it. Yeah. And that, just holding your tongue and brushing from the left to the middle to the right, just simple, just a brush from the back to the fore, gently, not to make yourself gag, but just gently, that really can make a difference. So parents have got a part to play here and, and children, obviously, as, as children grow into young adults, they've got a responsibility as, as well. What about um, schools and, 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 in fact, the more extended elements of society in early years? What, what part do they have to play in encouraging children to good oral hygiene? Yeah. So many schools are concerned about the, the state of their children's teeth, the kids in their classes. And the teachers have told me that they've, the children, when speaking, they've seen black teeth, they've seen cavities, they've seen bleeding gums, they've swollen gums. And the, and the teachers themselves want to try and help the children. So often the teachers approach us and ask us to introduce and implement a toothbrushing program in their school. And we'd be only too delighted to do that. And we, we, we teach the teachers how to run the program, how much toothpaste to, to place on a toothbrush. And we do it with a special toothpaste plate. And um, did you know that for a child under three, we only use a grain of rice size of toothpaste? And for a child of five, we use three to five, we use a pea size. You know, when you see the adverts of a toothbrush with the whole toothpaste coated on the entire surface exactly, of the brush? Yes. That is not, that's too much toothpaste. And so 
we teach how to how exactly how much is enough um, according to the fluoride content of the toothpaste. We don't want too much fluoride. We want just enough to make an active difference. And you were saying something to me when we were talking earlier on that in many households, a toothbrush is regarded as a luxury item. And when Absolutely. when there's uh, when a, a family is faced with poverty, it can be one of the items which is dispensed with, uh, that there is no toothbrush for the children. That, that must be a, a, yeah. a big part to play in this also. So in some households, we discovered that um, there's only one toothbrush for the entire family to share. Um, and so when we learned that fact, we realized that we need to ensure that every child in our program has their own toothbrush. And what we noticed when it's a status symbol for a child, I know you may not think that, but a child to have their own toothbrush that belongs to them, nobody else, it's got their name on it, they treasure that and they enjoy doing the program at school because it's their toothbrush, it's their time, their mouth feels cleaner, it feels um, much better, it's not smelly. After two days of brushing, the gums are not bleeding anymore. So the children really enjoy participating in the toothbrushing program. And so what happens then is that the children go home. So each each um, term, we give the child a new toothbrush. So the child takes a toothbrush home and the child teaches the parent, hey, mom, this is how you should be brushing. Not like this. You should be brushing this way because it's considered a fun activity. We make everything fun. So, for example, how do you get your teenager to brush? And I've had teenage boys who are not interested in brushing or anything. They change after a while. But we encourage them to put on a song on their phone that's two minutes long. Any trendy song, the song that they like, and they keep brushing for two minutes while, they, while they're listening to the song. So it's cool to brush as well. And that's a fun activity. Dr. Linda. What can parents specifically do to improve the dental health of their children? So what parents can do is a lot. Number one, um, discussing the diet with the children and making sure that the children don't have too many sugary snacks. Rewarding their kids for great progress with other things rather than sweets and sugar. Um, if you are going to give your children, you can't deny children sweets, we try and cut the sugar down. But um, if you are going to have sweets, then rather eat them all in one go rather than one sweet at one hour and an hour later. Oh, I like another the sound sweet. of that. Rather, <laughs> <laughs> rather just have them all in one go and choose a, choose a treat day. So lay Saturday afternoon or Saturday after lunch or one day is a treat day. And then all that sugar is consumed and then you brush your teeth um, afterwards. So making sure when you're rewarding you can you can put up a chart with the children's brushing and tick every day everything can be made fun so you set up a chart in the bathroom and every morning on every evening when the child's brushed um, and you've supervised that again you can reward children for good behavior and getting used to the habit of brushing you can put the toothpaste on the brush just enough and we spoke about exactly how much toothpaste to put depending on the age of your child you can supervise your child and watch them. You can set the habit and the whole family can brush together. Um, you can encourage your child to choose a toothbrushing song. Or you can get a little tooth timer, which is like an egg timer. Put it in the bathroom and the child has to keep brushing for two minutes and remind your child about brushing your tongue. So you can implement that, that it's a fun activity and done morning and evening. Most of the time, evening there's more time than morning is a big rush to get the kids out of the house on time for school. So um, those are simple things that you can implement to do that, to get a, get a good song um, and have a discussion which song would they like to listen to and set it up that it's a vibey. We would love to hear from our listeners at home what two-minute songs they would choose to uh, brush their teeth to. Uh, I was just thinking I have to come across two-minute songs quite a lot to fill gaps in my schedule. And uh, Ride a White Swan by T-Rex or I think it's Chant Number One by Blur. They're both good songs, but I'm guessing not many young children would be interested in those two songs. Yes, uh, probably the wheels of the bus, <laughs> those, <laughs> depending on the age. No, I was off, on off target age. on that one. Okay, any, anything else that they could be doing? <laughs> um, they could be um, 
being an, a, a little toothbrushing activist. So encourage their school to participate in the toothbrushing program or partner with them. If your school um, is already doing that, you could become an ambassador school for other local schools and encourage a community engagement for the whole community to make a difference to improve the children's oral health. And then you can speak to your own MP. If you're not happy with the health of, of, of what's happened, you can speak to your MP and ask them um, what targets they would like to see to improve children's oral health as well. So there's a lot of things that parents can do to make a difference for their children's oral health, but also the community oral health for the whole of St. Albans as well. So there's many things that can happen within a family then to, to make this uh, a, a, a fun activity, as you say. And obviously it's important that, um, that everyone takes, takes part and takes responsibility for their own oral hygiene and their, their dental health. But we, we hear mention of societal problems as well. You know, we've, we've touched on poverty having a, an aspect as well. But what as a society can we do to address the, the fundamental problems leading to dental illness. I mean, after all, dentistry is free for children. Uh, it's only yeah. four minutes a day that we're asking them to, to brush. What, what does right. get in the way? What is it about society that, uh, that prevents us achieving what we should be able to do? So, um, so there's, there's many factors. Also too busy. Everybody's very busy in their daily life um, to focus on this. They take, some people take their teeth for granted. Some people... Um, when they do the brush, it's a very quick, a very quick brush without, um, without actually really brushing on the surface of the teeth. But when we're talking about poverty, um, what we're talking about is um, there may not be a family unit. The child doesn't have um, a parent or, or there's a grandparent supervising. Um, the parent has been up all night working, maybe on a night shift, absolutely exhausted and just, you know, is too tired to supervise and to help the child with their brushing. And so with those kind of factors, you know, we need to consider how we can do that and take, um, and, and take responsibility through the schools. And the teachers have told us that they have noticed big changes um, when a toothbrushing program is implemented. As we said, some of the children may be scared of going to the dentist or scared of the toothbrush, not sure how to hold it. All these things that are taught to the child through brushing encourages the child to uh, build their self-esteem um, so that they're able to undertake a simple task as toothbrushing in a fun way, but also their mouth feels cleaner and they feel better about themselves. So as what can we do as a society? Um, we can do things at school. Um, you know, we spoke about uh, school meals and Marcus Rushford has been talking about implementing mm -hmm. school meals. We would like to see toothbrushing programs in every school so that this is part of the, the wash their hands, brush their teeth in a simple way. That, that's a simple thing that can be done to make a big difference. I've done a lot of studies on this, and it's shown that when toothbrushing programs are, in, are introduced all over the world, um, but these programs take place in Scotland and in Wales, and those are national programs that have been done for a very long time, not in England as a national program. There are pockets where we do the toothbrushing, but there's a 20 to 30% increase in the child's health pretty quickly from doing this. You said we uh, want to do these things, and you're referring there to the Dental Wellness Trust, because as well as having your yes. own practice, you are uh, well. You you set up the you're the founder of the Dental Wellness Trust. Tell us a little bit about that trust. What does it aim to achieve? So the motto of the Dental Wellness Trust is oral health through dental wellness, and we want oral health to be available to all, all members of society deserve. So did you know that oral health is a basic human right? The right to oral health is a basic human right. And so we want to ensure that everyone has access. E even on, on a global situation in the population, the same situation, people do not have toothbrushes. They don't have, they don't have uh, facilities to access dental care. It, it is a very big global problem and can be solved starting just with a toothbrush. And when we looked at those facts, we thought, wait a minute, we can make a difference if we do something focused on this important fact in a simple, in a simple way. So I started the Dental Wellness Trust 10 years ago as um, to wanting to give back. And I looked at ways that I could give back just as an individual. 
Um, and being a dentist, I thought, well, let me work on a way of giving back through dentistry, through the, through the little knowledge that I have. And I found that you can make a big difference if you care, if you care enough mm. and um, uh, with a positive mindset, because people think, well, how can I make a difference? One person, I mean, look at Major Tom and what he, what the difference he, he made. One person can make a difference if you want to. And, and actually, the making the difference is quite a, a positive thing. It, it puts everything into perspective and touches, touches your soul and touches areas where it teaches you so much about life. I can just sense the passion you have for the subject in those words that you've said <laughs> yes, there. I have it a is, lot of passion, yes, it's about very, it. very, very inspiring. Thank you for sharing yeah. that with us. So for our listeners in St. Albans, I mean, you must, the, the route for engagement through the Dental Wellness Trust must rely quite heavily on schools. Do you engage with schools in St. Albans? Not enough. Uh, we would love to have more schools volunteering. Um, so maybe to, some to pressure from our listeners on their schools to reach out and uh, engage with you would be a big thing to help. That would be great. Or speak to your head teacher or the family worker or your class teacher and and ask. As, as a parent, you can ask. So now at the moment, while schools are uh, closed, we've sent the toothbrushes um, home with the kids. So the kids are still brushing because they have toothbrush. They've got their brushes. They've got their kits. And so we want to ensure that that it still continues and then we will come and teach your school we'll come and teach the teachers a lot of it's done through zoom so that when school goes back you can get a teacher's pack ready to start and we run through the program and have teacher's manual so that the program can be implemented pretty quickly and then the children um, we have the leaders at, in school, like a child monitor can help with placing the toothpaste, taking a roll call, choosing a fun song, because there's so many fun songs to choose um, to brush to. And the whole activity becomes a positive exercise. And our listeners can find out more about the Dental Wellness Trust from the website. I'm sure just searching on Dental Wellness Trust would uh, would find it. But what is the actual website address? It's uh, www.dentalwellnesstrust.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your passion uh, on the, the subject with us here on Radio Verulam, uh, Dr. Linda Greenwall. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Time now for another short break, but we will be back in just a couple of moments with our final story of the evening. We're going to be joined by Sophia and Mum Natasha and the story of their rescue dog. This is Radio Verulam and you're listening to The Parent Show. The Parent Show, sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award-winning specialist family lawyers. See raidensolicitors.co.uk. Now, we all know about the importance of pets in a family life, how they can be a loved one, a loved member, as if they were a child themselves. But today we're going to be joined by Sophia. Uh, Sophia has a story to tell about her first pet, which is a rescue pet. Um, Sophia, welcome to Radio Verulam. Thank you. <laughs> we're glad you're here with us. And um, tell us, first of all, tell us about your pet. What kind of dog do you have? Um, she is a crossbreed and um, we think she's a staffy, but we're not completely sure, um, obviously, because she's a rescue. And we've had her for about two months and she's she's really lovely and she loves people. That's always a good thing. And is it your first dog, your first pet? Yeah, we've never had a dog before, but I've always wanted one. And from the first couple of months that you've had her, what's your first impression? Is is she everything you thought she would be? Uh, well, I think she's a bit better, actually, because I thought she would be a bit nervous. And I was going to sleep with her on the first night, but actually she was completely fine. And she was just happy to be loved and have a home and stuff. So what's the what's the best thing about having the dog then? What's the, what's the most fun? Uh, she just loves to be cuddled and like... She just loves people and she'll just sit with you all day and she loves to run around as well. And how much effort is it for you? I assume this is your pet, so you're responsible for walks yeah. and feeding and, and all clearing up after the little accidents and so on. How much uh, effort is it for you to look after your dog? Well, she's not really that much effort, to be honest. She's not as much as I thought. We just have to... She likes to go on quite long walks and she's very fit. And then she just has to be fed twice a day. 
And yeah, she's not really that needy, to be honest. She's just happy to be around. That's that's lovely to hear. And I'm glad that you're doing all of the things that you're supposed to be to, to look after the dog. Lots of children, though, do get dogs, don't they? And, and this is not unusual. But what makes this slightly more interesting is that, as we've already said, your dog is a rescue dog. Yeah. What, what does that mean to you? Well, it means that she was... So she was from Crete in Greece and she was dumped outside a shelter. So basically we've just, she's been flown over to England so that she can have a better chance to have a family and like a good life. Do you know anything about her life before she was uh, abandoned? Why she was left behind? Well, she had puppies and she was abandoned at the shelter with two of them, but we don't know what happened to the rest of them. And that's about all we know. So what made you choose a rescue dog rather than a dog from perhaps a a puppy farm or something like that? Well, I think it's much nicer because she gets a better chance and gets to be loved. Whereas any dog from a breeder, there's always going to be someone who would choose them. And yeah, they just deserve a home much more than dogs from breeders. And also, not in all cases, but sometimes breeders aren't really what they say and they can overbreed dogs and it's not fair on them as well so so do you do you suspect that your dog was abused before you got her um we're not sure but she has some bites and scars on her but that's likely to be from other dogs because she was obviously in a shelter for a bit but she really loves people so I don't think she's been hurt from by other people very much but she's had a difficult time nevertheless. So you think that she deserves a second chance and you're offering her that, offering her a living home. Why did you go as far as Greece to find a rescue dog? Are are there, uh, I don't mean to sound trite about this, but is there a shortage of rescue dogs in the UK? Well, we looked for rescue dogs in the UK and none of them were really suitable to us, but we weren't necessarily trying to get one from abroad. But this rescue called Chimney Farm, they take dogs from abroad and we saw her and we just thought that she was perfect. So, What was it that uh, drew you to her when you saw her? Uh, Well, everything that the foster mum who she was staying with, um, that she said about her was just really lovely and how much she loved people. She was really friendly. She didn't molt, which my mum was quite happy about. And yeah, (laughs) she was just perfect. So what would you say to anyone who was looking to take a rescue dog as a pet? Uh, I think it's a great opportunity and it gets gives you the chance to give an animal a better life. And in our case, Pepper was so much beha- well, more well-behaved than other dogs because she just wanted to be loved. So every trick we taught her, she just did it straight away and she just loves to play and everything. So she's really well-behaved. Sophia, it sounds very rewarding having a rescue dog for a pet and I'm glad that you found each other and uh, are having such a great time. Can I speak to uh, Mum uh, for a second? Thanks for being with us. Hello, Steve. Natasha, hi. Welcome to Radio Verulam. Obviously, we were just talking to your daughter, Sophia, there about the rescue dog and how she chose her as a pet. How was the experience for you? It's been amazing, to be honest. We were very sort of slightly concerned about letting a dog about the huge responsibility and and we, we dog sat for people before that was sort of my um, interim sort of thing really trying to build up to having a dog I suppose as a little test to see how we'd all get on and but it's been great you know it's made the children walk more and just take more responsibility and she's such a lovely friendly I was very not worried that she might be quite nervous and shy when she arrived and it was almost like she'd lived with us forever. You know, I think that was so lovely. And we had sort of gone down the route of looking for a rescue dog initially and then just couldn't find a rescue dog anywhere with all our local rescue places. And this dog just appeared on the internet. I, I think that will surprise a lot of people, actually, Natasha, that there was it was so difficult for you to find a rescue dog locally. Really, really difficult, which I, you know, we thought we'd find very quickly. But um, the local rescue, I mean, to be fair, we'd only just got our garden secure at the beginning of lockdown in November, or sort of November, November, December time. And they just said they'd got sort of 
200 plus people on the wait list for rescue dogs at Appledown, which is near us. And, you know, there were things like sometimes because we had a guinea pig or because of the children's age. or And it's very good that all these um, rescue places are very strict on the guidelines that they follow um, because it's so important you get the right dog matched with the right families. Um, but Chimney Rescue were brilliant. I had to have an hour's interview. We had to, to make sure we were the right family for her and we had to do sort of a Zoom um, call showing the garden, showing the environment that she would be in, where she would sleep potentially, you know, and all that. So they really carefully checked us out, um, you know, which is really important because they don't want to have any more dogs, you know, given back. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing, really. We're just one of the best things we've done, I think, really. And there's obviously already a strong bond between uh, your pet and Sophia. How would you say that the rescue pet has added to your family? Oh, she's she's been great. I just, you know, I mean, uh, you should never get a dog because of lockdown. I think that's a very, but we, Sophia's wanted a dog for 10 years, but particularly with lockdown, it's been so lovely for the children to have Peppa here to train and to play with and they've spent so much time with her and she's just um, made us smile and laugh lots particular moment which has been really um, you know very special and and yeah and got got the children outside more I think especially when it's cold and dark and or even wet and rainy and they might not particularly want to go for a walk Peppa still needs taking for a walk so you know we've sort of um you know have to go out and walk her when maybe they would rather be sitting at home doing something else so it's definitely kept them a bit more active I think in lockdown with um yeah so it's been a great definitely recommend it to anyone and to really try and look look at rescue dogs and consider them more and um you know a lot of people think they're going to be a lot of work or problems but actually you know the, the rescue centres are very good at matching the right people to the right dog, um, which I think is why it took us a little while to, to find one, really. That is, uh, it's a simple story that uh, you're here to tell us uh, about somebody getting a pet, but it is a really timely reminder of the, the importance of choosing the right pet and the pet centres choosing the right owners as well. And it's great to hear that you're all benefiting so much from having a pet uh, in this very, very difficult time and reminding us that the rescue dogs are equally rewarding as as any other pet. So thank you for sharing your tale uh, with us today, Sophia and Natasha. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Verulam. Thank you very much, Steve. And that simple but charming tale of one girl and her dog brings us to the end of the parent show this evening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and please let us know if you've got any thoughts or comments about any of the stories we've featured on the show tonight. Email me at steve.simpson at Until the same time next week, goodbye. <laughs>